0: and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language. Then you're considering Catholicism. So, Corey, we're still here in the woods. Yes. We just finished talking about science and Catholicism and science, but we're sort of following up on an episode we did um, uh, recently about creationism. And, you know, one of the things that we said in that creation episode because i re-listened to it is you at one point had brought up the galileo thing i'm like i'm so glad you brought that up so i said at that time we're we're gonna have to come back into a whole episode on galileo so that moment has arrived dear listeners the galileo episode has arrived uh and it's something that we have to talk about because i'm assuming most of you have heard some form of the what i'm going to call the galileo myth it's very widespread I was taught it in school, but I don't know what they teach the kids in the schools these days because I'm old and I have no idea what kind of woke nonsense the kids are taught these days. But I was taught the Galileo myth and it's been in a thousand movies and books and, you know, mm-hmm. college lectures and songs and in, whatever. In
1: many ways, it's just a, f- a foundational myth of
0: modern culture. Yeah, it is. It is. It's an origin story of, yeah, yeah, uh, of modern culture. And and so here's the basic tenets of the Galileo myth. Now, what I'm about to say is not the truth. It's the way the myth, I'm I'm, I'm laying out the myth. And then we're going to explain why everything that our listeners have ever heard about Galileo is wrong. Okay. So here's how the myth goes. Way back in the dark ages, when the Catholic church ruled the world with illiteracy and superstition. Um, and religious mumbo jumbo and people couldn't read or write or have any science and it taught all kinds of superstitious mumbo jumbo about the world. There was a brave man who was a scientist and nobody could understand his commitment to this new thing called the scientific method. And he did all kinds of things. Like he went up to the leaning tower of Pisa and he dropped, you know, a heavy ball, ball, like a bowling ball and a pebble. And he tested gravity. And then he wanted to observe the the celestial bodies and so we invented the telescope and you know nobody is like oh my god what is this you know and he invented a telescope so we could observe the celestial bodies and he began to observe their movements and he he began to realize that the church of the middle ages had invented a lie to suppress the illiterate peasants and the lie that it had invented to suppress the illiterate peasants is that the sun and the stars rotated around the earth and. He bravely, through his observations, proclaimed the truth that the earth and the other planets revolved around the sun. And for his brave commitment to exposing the scientific truth, the church threw him in a dungeon, excommunicated him from the church, and confined him to a dark prison. That is the Galileo myth. In some versions, he gets burned. Yeah, in some versions it gets burned, um, because the tr- the church wanted to keep the people illiterate and ignorant of the truth, and in their medieval darkness suppress bold pioneers of science and intelligence and observation. Now this is the Considering Catholicism podcast, and it's a family podcast, <laughs> but you know we're all adults here. Uh, Corey and I are actually having a robust beverage here under the pines. And I would say that that loosens my tongue to say that almost everything that I just said is bullshit. And Corey is going to help explain why.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, I guess uh, the the place to start is the beginning. So so you set the scene that this happens in the dark ages or the middle ages, or um, there are different terms for it. And first of all, those terms themselves are highly loaded. They they were invented in a later period, um, the period in which Galileo lived, um, called the Enlightenment, um, as an insult and a slur against the, the ages that had come before.
0: So let's just like frame this a little bit, yeah. right? Yeah. So the Middle Ages is generally, or the medieval period, mm-hmm. is more or less generally considered to be From the fall of the Western Roman Empire, Mm -hmm. depending on when you want to date that, in the late 400s. Yeah. Okay, somewhere in the middle 400s, there's a couple of events. Yeah. And then up till about a thousand years until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So the Middle Ages lasted roughly a thousand years from roughly 450 to 1450. Those are generally considered the Middle Ages, the medieval period. When did all of this kerfluffle with Galileo occur?
1: Well, the the early 17th century or 1600s, as they say.
0: So 200 years Mm -hmm. after...
1: Well well out of what's usually considered the Middle Ages. And and if we talk about the Dark Ages, so-called as being the early part of the Middle Ages, like hundreds and hundreds of years out of that. And when did
0: Columbus sail the ocean blue? 1492, as we were all taught. That's right. Elementary school. Right. And and, and have you been to Colonial Williamsburg? I haven't. No. Oh, you need to go. It's super cool. Uh, But you go to Colonial Williamsburg and just down the road, you go to Jamestown. Mm -hmm. And that was the first English settlement in the Americas, right? Mm -hmm. 1620. And Galileo's trials occur right around- His six, first trial was 1616. Second trial, 1620. Yeah. So it's basically around yeah. the same time that the English are settling America and the American colonies. So the first part of the Galileo myth that's BS is that this is the Middle Ages. It was actually in the Enlightenment and there were a lot of things going on in Europe at that time, a lot of contentious things going on in Europe at that time. But Europe was becoming very scientifically advanced at that time. Gunpowder ships, the colonization of Americas, a lot of things. So Galileo is not a victim of the medieval church. Mm-hmm. Point one.
1: Uh, if I remember how you told all of that, sort of the second point to talk about would be sort of the the ignorance or the obscurantism of, of the church that is posited in that myth. It's really just not true. Even before that time, the church was not the enemy of literacy of learning. In many ways, it was the champion of those
0: things. The um, only literacy in that was in Europe was because of the church. The church preserved and expanded literacy and science and art and architecture. And the universities
1: arose out of the monasteries um, and and out of the clergy. And so the the centers of learning were ecclesiastical. Oxford, mm -hmm. where you have been. Oxford, Paris, Paris, Bologna. Bologna, All
0: of these are the great medieval universities that are all circa like say 1200. Mm -hmm. And they are centers of learning, science, the great cathedrals, architecture, Mathematics, Every field of human knowledge are being propagated 400 years before, and in universities, 400 years before Galileo. The medieval church was actually, the way to think about it was when the Roman Empire collapsed, right? You lost the infrastructure of the empire. So you lost... Communications and and uh, mail and you know town centers and cities, good governance, good yeah. governance, and so things. Sort of what really happened in Europe is it reverted to more of a rural existence for several hundred years. But even in that rural existence, the the depositories of literacy, learning, and knowledge have been left from the classical world were in the monasteries, in the churches and these things. And then, as Europe gradually, in a sense, reurbanized and cities were rebuilt and mm-hmm. governance returned, and kings like Charlemagne and others began to I mean, King Charlemagne, right? demanded right expanded literacy, demanded literacy to be expanded by the church throughout, mm-hmm. you know, the kingdom of the Franks. So all of these things, yeah, the 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 myth there about the medieval church is just wrong. It was not a time where the church suppressed knowledge.
1: Well, and Galileo as a scientist himself, I mean, the the scientific community and climate that could produce a scientist like Galileo, who, who was genuinely a pioneering scientist, was fostered by the church. You have... Um, other astronomers and physicists, um, either contemporaries or younger contemporaries or people who lived generations before Galileo that were were funded by the church or were in fact churchmen themselves.
0: Well, we're gonna get into the details of the myth here in a moment uh, or the details of Galileo's story in a moment. (laughs) But The whole story revolves around something called the Vatican Observatory (laughs) because Mm -hmm. the Vatican was a center of astronomical Observation and knowledge mm-hmm. and that's exactly where the whole Galileo thing went sideways, and we'll get into it in a moment, was around that. Another was just saying, I just I know time is precious, but as an aside, one of the things that's always bothered me about that medieval myth is uh, this business about literacy, and that everybody was illiterate, you know, and the peasants were illiterate, and the church tried to keep everybody illiterate. There was a good reason why most people in the Middle Ages couldn't read there wasn't anything to read because you didn't have a printing press.
1: Right. It was very time-consuming and expensive and laborious to make any kind of copy of literature.
0: Anybody who had access to books generally wanted to learn and was taught to read, but books were very expensive. They were handwritten on uh, vellum or very expensive materials, And there were very few of them. So if you, you know, are Gustav the farmer, right? In, you know, Strasbourg, what are you going to read? Like, Mm -hmm. they're not teaching you to read at school because there aren't any books to read. Well, you're not going to school. You don't
1: have the the time or the
0: the excess wealth either necessarily to do that. Well, I would argue that Gustav from Strasbourg probably had a very high IQ and was very knowledgeable about a whole lot of things, including knowledge about his religion, but this notion of literacy itself that the people are... What happens is about 100 years before Galileo, right, we have the invention of the printing press, Mm -hmm. uh, Gutenberg, and, and all of a sudden now you have mass printing of material which facilitates the spread of knowledge and ordinary people reading so the church didn't promote illiteracy until the technology it would be like going back a hundred years ago and saying you know a hundred years ago people know you know people didn't watch television like they didn't, they weren't knowledgeable about like TV sitcoms because at all. Because the church stopped, them. <laughs> <laughs> right? If you like, you go, you know, the thing, the thing about people in the 1800s is they weren't knowledgeable about cinema and and TV sitcoms. And you go, that might have been a good thing for, for the church to do, right? But you go, but there weren't, tele, well, there wasn't television or sitcoms, right? So people didn't know about something that they couldn't, they didn't have access to. Essentially, a new technology emerged in the early 1500s that made literacy. So anyway, that's just my aside. So number one, it wasn't the middle ages. Number two, the middle ages was not a time of darkness. Mm -hmm. Number three.
1: Well, number three, we can probably start getting into specific claims about Galileo and his scientific discoveries. Like I said before, he genuinely was a pioneering scientist. Like he was a very bright man and he was part of the scientific uh, milieu of his day. And he made genuine discoveries and posited new and and interesting theories, but there are also myths about what he did. For, for one thing, he didn't invent the telescope. Um, the telescope was invented in the Netherlands. Galileo found out about it, built one, and then started claiming that he had invented the thing.
0: Okay. So which introduces an idea that we're going to unpack mm-hmm. uh, in this conversation as we go along. And the fundamental problem with Galileo is, now I, I said before we started the recorder, because we are here having a, a libation, I made the point that Galileo uh, had an unlikable personality. But I, I used a word that I won't use now. Uh, but um, let me find an equivalent. Galileo was kind of a jackass. Uh, he was, his personality was an abrasive, self-promoting Okay, he was a, he was self-promoting, egotistical, and abrasive, and he rubbed almost everybody he met throughout his entire career the wrong way. Mm-hmm. He was basically a jackass. So you're right. When it came to the telescope, the telescope invented the Netherlands. And what happens, he you're right. He finds out about it. He kind of cobbles one together. <laughs> he's living in in Italy. And he's
1: a clever guy. He genuinely gets good at making these. Yeah, things. yeah.
0: He's yeah. like, oh, cool. Here's a cool idea. And then he makes one. Of the, but then he walks into the Vatican, you're right. I mean, he goes into mm-hmm. to uh, he was being essentially funded more or less like in a university kind of a thing, yeah, kind of a tenure or stipend mm-hmm. or funding from the from the Vatican. And he comes in and he starts showing this thing around Rome and going, look at this thing I invented invented. invented and he sort of self promotes himself around that as I Galileo, the inventor of the telescope. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, we can sort of knock over another minor myth about Galileo while we're here. Um, he he did experiments about gravity, um, and he he did some pioneering work in that regard. The thing about the Tower of Pisa is, is a myth. It's a good, it's a nice sounding myth, but he he never actually went up the tower, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and dropped stuff off of it. Um, there were some other interesting experiments, like dropping things off of the mast of a moving ship, and like genuinely cool stuff. But the the Pisa thing is bunk.
0: Yeah, it's kind of cool because you know it's leaning, and yeah. it's a cool idea, and everybody who goes to Pisa has to go see it, and you know whatever. So. But yeah, nope, not true. Mm-hmm. So, okay, now let's get into the heart of this business, okay? The notion that he did all of these original observations of the celestial bodies through the telescope that he invented mm. and determined that uh, everything moved around the sun, That what's called the heliocentric theory. So let's begin to pierce this myth because this is super goofy.
1: Yeah, so I mean the the problem with this and part of how the myth arises is that this is this is not a simple thing. Like there's a lot of history of thought and history of science here and this is a time of change in in the intellectual climate in Europe and so it's much easier to simplify things into good guy bad guy he was right everyone else was wrong sort of dichotomies what is is not nearly as simple as that a, a little bit of background so the generally received view of the structure of the universe of cosmology of that time was based on Aristotle through Ptolemy. And it's this notion that the Earth is at the center of the universe, that there's the moon, of course, orbiting the Earth. And then that's kind of the boundary line in the universe. And so everything below that is corruptible and subject to change. And then there's the idea that that everything outside of the orbit of the moon is made of different kinds of matter that is incorruptible. It's not subject to change, and it's all orbiting around or rotating around the earth in these sort of spherical objects. And so that would include the other planets, Mer- the known planets, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Mars, etc. cetera, uh, the sun. And then it was believed that the stars were in a fixed sphere that did not move outside of all of those others. And that was sort of the boundary of the physical universe. And we laugh at that nowadays, but it, it was no laughing matter at the time. And it was based on, you know, observations of the actual physical universe and very complicated mathematics that all made sense and that all predicted phenomena in the universe predicted eclipses predicted all kinds of stuff and and these people weren't fools like the best the best minds of for a thousand years believed this model because they figured out mathematical ways of of making it make sense. And, and without things like the telescope or other tools that weren't invented yet, you couldn't make the observations that would show that those were, were false. I mean, you, you stand on the earth and the earth appears to not be moving. There are certain things that appear to be moving in the sky and certain things that don't appear to be moving in the sky. It, it was essentially the best scientific theory of the day. And that's where the situation, the, the state of the game until slightly before Galileo arrives on the scene yeah
0: well said I mean here's what I'd say to the listener it's easy for us to say sitting where we sit today oh my gosh how could you believe something as stupid as everything goes around the earth rather than the other going around the sun well what I would say is if you didn't know that if I transported (laughs) you back a thousand years or whatever how would you know that? Well, I, I it's just obvious. It's not obvious. Not not in any empirical way. It, it, yeah. it, it's, it's not obvious at all. Uh, you know, you look over there, the sun comes up over in the east and it goes down to the west and you go, well, it's obvious that we're rotating around it. You go, no, it's, it's, it's not obvious at all. Now, the reality is, is there were people who suspected a heliocentric model going all the way back to the classical period the Greek right, Romans. Right. There were Greeks who suspected that or posited that it might be possible that Aristotle is wrong and it goes another way. But the question is, how do you prove it? Mm-hmm. So if I said to any of our listeners, prove to me with nothing but a pencil and, 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 and paper that the... Earth rotates around the sun rather than the other way around. How would you prove it? Well, well I, and then, you and can't. You yeah. can't. You can, you can. How, would you, how would you, you know, even if you suspected that, how would you prove it? Now, to, what Corey said a moment ago is interesting because what had happened is for thousands of years, and I mean many thousands of years, right, people have been observing the stars and the celestial bodies. I, I remember the oldest place that I've been to see this is okay. So there is in Ireland, about an hour North of Dublin, a place called Newgrange, And it is 1500 years older than the, uh, than the great pyramids in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And it's a big mound thing, like a, this giant mound. And then it has these like this uh, internal ca- like cave in the center with this like window in the rocks and like at the solstice, like the light Mm -hmm. shines in and hits this pillar and all this. And this like was from 3,500 B.C.
1: Well, and, and it, it, you you mentioned Egypt, like thing things were all astronomically aligned in Egypt. The Mayans yeah. and the Aztecs did that. You think of S- Stonehenge, you know, a- right. across the Irish Sea in England,
0: S- right? Exactly. So what people have been doing since the dawn of time is going and observing, like looking in the sky and going at a certain date, the planets and the stars go to certain places. You know, and so you can sit there and say, "Okay, Jupiter, or Venus, or Mars, or whatever, right? It's around, it's over that tree, or it's right around there every year around this time." And people had been writing that down; uh, they had been building markers, and really for a couple thousand years, people had been making careful observations and charts of of the planets. In fact, it's interesting. The reason the planets are called planets is it comes from the root of the word is wanderer. Mm -hmm. Because actually what's weird is if you track them over the course of a year, they'll move and then they kind of look like they're going backwards and they move again. Right, unlike the motions of the other stars. Right. And so all around the ancient world and the medieval world uh, and the classical world, there were charts that said on these days of the year, this thing is at this position. Right, I mean mm-hmm. degrees latitude, right? Right there, however, they, were, you know, right. So there were these very careful charts, and as Corey said a moment ago, those charts worked. Like you could sit there and say, as you said a moment ago, I can predict with confidence that on July 14, two years from now, an eclipse will occur at such and such a point in the sky. I can confidently predict that on April 12, three years from now that Jupiter and Mars will be at these points in the sky. And those charts had been worked over for thousands of years. And those observations were reliable. And people built navigation and conservation and calendars based on them. Mm -hmm. So when someone comes along and says, all of that is wrong, the question is, well, prove it. And it isn't as simple as saying, well, you know, in the illiterate, you know, medieval church, the Bible tells us that, you know, because actually there's one passage in the Bible you kind of sort of say, but the Bible doesn't have anything that explicitly teaches us. What what, what the issue for Galileo and, and the church was is you're making an assertion for which you don't have any mathematical proofs and it contradicts all of this Received information. Mm-hmm. Now we haven't gotten into Copernicus so I'll, and and a few other people, but I'll let you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and we'll have to stick a pin in and get back to the the issue of the Bible in in a few minutes too, because that's obviously central to it. But yeah, so so we mentioned that that system had been refined and perfected over thousands of years, and slightly before Galileo's career, um, you had Nicholas Copernicus, a Polish priest who. Was doing pioneering scientific work and had again sort of reposited the idea that maybe the universe didn't revolve around the Earth, but instead revolved around the sun. Um, not an unheard of idea, but one that had you know been rejected by common consensus for a long time. And the Church didn't persecute him for one. Copernicus seems to have had a more likable personality okay. than
0: Galileo. So down yeah, there, go there ahead. I think is super yeah. important. I'm going to say what you just said, but I want to say it again for emphasis. Mm -hmm. He was like maybe a generation. Yeah, slightly before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, within like 20 years. So Copernicus is a Polish, as you say, a Polish priest who works as a mathematician and astronomer. Mm. And he's working for the church. So the church is not persecuting astronomers and mathematicians. And Copernicus is the one. It is Copernicus who develops the heliocentric theory. Copernicus posits that the planets are rotating, including the earth are rotating around the sun. Mm -hmm. And he does these observe, you know, he kind of works with the charts because if you say that that's the case, then you have to say, okay, then develop the mathematical model, which reconciles the fact that we know that on July 17, two years from now, Jupiter and Mars are going to be in these positions of the sky. So if, if what you're saying is true, basically build the mathematical model that squares with our observational data. Mm -hmm. And Copernicus kind of struggles with that. Like he's got the idea and he's kind of got the math half done, maybe like three quarters. Well, actually he got the math pretty close, but it didn't line up. So the problem with Copernicus was that he says, look, I think the planets are all rotating the sun. But when then they go, okay. If that's the case, then on July 17, Jupiter should be here and Mars should be here. And they go outside in the night sky and they go, they're not where they should be. Mm-hmm. If based on the heliocentric ba- theory, what you're yeah. saying is they're they're not there. So your 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 idea is a cute idea, but it doesn't square with with the scientific metal method of observing reality. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now now then, what happens is Galileo, because he's a egotistical self-promoting jackass picks up on Copernicus's ideas. Yeah,
1: which, which was out there. I mean, there were people who were promoting it. Um, it wasn't certainly not widely accepted no,
0: yet. No, it wasn't, no, yeah. it wasn't widely accepted. Mm-hmm. Right. And as you say, Copernicus was a very faithful Catholic priest mm-hmm. He was apparently a more humble and likable guy, but but Galileo is this self-promoting egotistical kind of jackass who takes Copernicus's theories and starts asserting them as true and starts basically building this whole self-promotional thing where he takes Copernicus's work and tries to... Not pawn it off as his own, but basically kind of pawn it off as his own and build on it. Yeah, I mean, part of it is that using that telescope, which he didn't
1: invent, but was a you know a very early adopter of, um, he made some observations that were hard to explain based on the uh, you know the the common uh, Aristotelian model of the universe. He he discovered that Jupiter had four satellites. We know now that Jupiter has more than four moons, but he he was able to observe with that early telescope that there are things orbiting around. Jupiter. He was able to observe other, other phenomena in the night sky with the telescope that didn't make sense with the,
0: with the Aristotelian model of the universe. So he starts poking holes. So now what you have is him promoting aggressively the heliocentric model of Copernicus and with his own observations added to it. And he wants to be hailed and trumpeted as, as a, as a great man and an innovator and to receive you know a lot of favors and funding and support from the Vatican mm-hmm. okay and there is the Pope at the time actually is enamored with these ideas mm-hmm. the Pope at the time is very open to Copernicus's ideas and he really is excited by by Galileo's observations and encourages him and actually provides him with you know funding like stipends and living you know place to live and all this stuff in Rome and you know kind of gives him you know, basically a stipend or a, you know, salary or something. So we can pursue this, right? Mm -hmm. But what he says to him is, well, make it work. Because what you're doing is you're poking holes in the model, but what we don't still have is a workable mathematical model. You haven't proved it. You haven't proved it. And you don't have a working mathematical model that squares these new theories with the observational data, the star charts.
1: Mm -hmm. I, I think now might be a good time to return to the question of scripture because it, yeah. it starts to become an issue when we get towards Galileo's first trial. And so the the scientific model of the universe, the Aristotelian model, predates Christianity. It's it's adopted in Christianity, not originally or or even subsequently as a religious tenet, but just because it's the best science of the day. And it also seems to jibe with the language of scripture. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that there are a few passages in scripture where it talks about, you know, things that in even our language today seem very ordinary and ways of speaking about the sun rising, going, moving its course and setting and the earth standing still. Um, there's the story of... Uh, what is it, Gideon? I I always get the judges mixed up, but the sun, the story of the sun standing still, um, for a day in the Old Testament, and th- there's just this Joshua, Joshua. There we go. So you you have language in the scripture that suggests that the earth is stationary and that the sun and the other planets move around it. And the thing is that e- even even moderns, people today who who have all the scientific background knowledge about the fact that the earth orbits, the sun, and all of these things, we still talk like that because it's how we well, it's it's how, how we
0: experience the universe. Right. And we're sitting out here right. at the secret compound. And I know right over there, the sun is mm-hmm. going to rise over there right. behind those trees and it's going to set over there. Maybe that's our language. But here's what I'd say is, and I don't want to go down this rabble trail too far. I would just argue that, that there's no passage in scripture that is definitively written to sort of teach an astronomical model. Right.
1: And, and as far back at least as Saint Augustine of Hippo you have people making this point. He says, you know, the the Lord, I'm paraphrasing Augustine, but, but the the Lord willed that the scriptures would be written not to make men mathematicians and phys, and, and astronomers but to make men Christians. Like the point is not yeah. to that it's a science textbook that's teaching us about the movements of the sun. It fancy term is phenomenological language. Right. It's it's how we observe phenomena in the universe. So over the course of those Middle Ages that we talked about, it became ordinary opinion to believe that the Bible was positing or, or was corroborating the Aristotelian view of the universe. Yeah,
0: I would, I would argue from a sort of intellectual history standpoint that the universities and that included the church because the church, the universities were were funded by the church and whatever. Yeah that the establishment was, was committed to Aristotelianism Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and its commitment to the geocentric theory was more based on Aristotelianism than scripture. And what I think they believed was that scripture supported Aristotelianism Mm -hmm. rather than Aristotelianism supporting scripture. Right. And, And I think that's just kind of because in their defense, Aristotle and his, you know, the school that followed him presented a working model. Like think about how many things in science like you don't understand or we don't understand. Like we we drive our car, we use our phone. well, we, even
1: modern scientific theories, like we everybody saw like the model of an atom in your science textbook. But but even like, the but science like little textbook, solar system, right. yeah. But even the science textbooks admit like if you could see down to the subatomic level, it wouldn't actually look like this. This like is a just little, a model to help us understand.
0: But but here's the thing is it works. It's works. So like I may not completely understand the chemistry of how my cell phone battery works or the chemistry of how my car works, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's all kinds of weird chemistry and metallurgy. What I just know is that it works. And so what happens is with technology and, and, and the underlying sort of science, a lot of us go, well, wait a minute, But see, this works like, uh, oh, boy, man, we're going down a lot of rabbit trails here. (laughs) But like, yeah, so like if you look at your typical map of the world, right, where you have the lines of latitude and longitude are at right angles, Mm -hmm. it sort of works because you go, okay, well, this is so far from here and this is so far from here. Right. But it leads to sort of distortions because it's taking a a three dimensional thing and projecting on two dimensional space. But, you know, using that map, it sort of works. You can get from point A to point B. and and come bring this back to Galileo, you go, well you know all kinds of things depended on this this isn't speculative because things like navigation of ships things like <laughs> clocks things like time things like you know transport all these things depended on celestial you know, th- things like agriculture all depended on these celestial observations and you had thousands of years of sort of star charts that worked so if you were going to say that those star charts were all wrong the burden was on of proof was on you to sort of make the math work and give us new working charts.
1: And in the same way, if we're going to say that the way that the church is reading those passages in scripture is not the right way to read those passages, not that the passages are wrong, but that we are reading them wrongly, then you have to show evidence for that. You can't just bully the church into accepting your view, especially
0: in the generations
1: immediately after the Reformation.
0: Right. So let's, I want to jump ahead to the science part of this and then we'll Mm -hmm. come back to to Galileo and, you know, the popes and the trial. Yeah. 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 But see, there was a missing piece to this. So there's actually three people in this story. And well, there's, you know, lots of people in the story, right? It's complicated. Right. Because there was Aristotle and then, and then there were others after Aristotle promoted that view. And there had been people all the way back to the Greek world who suspected a heliocentric uh, everything revolving on the sun theory. Uh, but Copernicus is the big one who first really, really proposes this model of the planets revolving around the sun, but his math doesn't work. Galileo, who is, I'm just going to continue to go with this because I'm just into it now, is a, is a egotistical self-promoting jackass, right? Takes Copernicus's work, tries to like, you know, sell it basically, you know, he does, yeah, he does some of his own Mm like you say Jupiter and this and that but he like tries to sort of sell it and he wants to be in Rome and he wants funding because at the end of the day we all want funding, we all want a salary and we all want a house and he wants the Vatican and and the universities and all that to buy into him and give him grants and funding and salaries and support Mm -hmm. and he he also is egotistical and he wants his name, he wants his name on books and papers and he wants to be a celebrity, right? Mm -hmm. So he takes Copernicus model, he tries to fiddle with it. And his buddy, the Pope goes, I I love where you're going with this man, but can you, can you sort of make the math work? And it's like, I don't need to make the math work. It's good enough that I say it. And I, I, I am Galileo and I say it works. And that's all good, should be good enough for you. And they're like, well, dude, you're kind of an egotistical self-promoting jackass because like, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be able to do the math. Now here's the missing name, man named Johann Kepler. Mm Mm-hmm. Kepler figures out why the math doesn't work. And why the math doesn't work is super interesting. At least I find it super interesting. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle assumed that everything moved around the earth in circles. Perfect circles. Right. Because, because that's the perfect shape in here. Because is, it's the perfect yeah. shape. And it makes sense. If things are spinning around, they spin around in circles. Copernicus said, no, 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 no. It's not everything spinning around the earth, it's everything spinning around the sun in perfect circles well the problem is is that didn't square with the observational data on june 17 or july 17 two years from now jupiter and mars don't line up right Mm -hmm. that's they're not where they're supposed to be they're not where no they're supposed to we can literally go out in the sky look up and go they're not they're they're not where you, you say they are because you were assuming they were that the orbits were circular Johann Kepler, and he's like 10 or 15 years after Galileo. So, all these things are occurring over about a 30-year like window mm-hmm. of generations. Kepler figures it out. They aren't circles. They are... Ellipses. Ellipses. Basically, an egg shape. Mm-hmm. So, what happens is the... And he comes up with Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. So, basically, think of an egg shape. And you imagine that you have the sun at the center... And the planets, as they get, as they get closer, they, they, or as they draw toward, they, they, they sort of like an egg shape. They sort of move in and spin around the sun. And then as they spin out elliptically, they, they, at their furthest point, they're like on the opposite, they're further from Mm -hmm. the sun. Right. You know, so imagine that egg shape. And he has these three laws of planetary motion, like their speed changes, Right? So as they get in closer, they accelerate and then they slow down. Anyway, what happens is once he figures that out and he, and he recalculates everything based on these elliptical orbits, guess what? The math works. The math, not only is the math work, it lines up with the observational data. Mm-hmm. So now Kepler goes, well, if we recalculate all the math and we do all the math with ellipses, Then on July 17, two years from now, if you go up and you look over that top of that building, Jupiter and Mars are exactly where they're supposed to be. And that was the problem is that Galileo demanded that people fund him, support him, laud him, give him titles and honors and all this kind of stuff based on him using Copernicus's theory in which the math wouldn't work. And the math never did work because he didn't figure out what Kepler did which is that the ellipses are orbital or mm-hmm. the uh, orbits are elliptical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you, Corey, go back here a little bit. Let's rewind that. Cause that's sort of like the finishing thing, mm-hmm. but here's what happens, right? So Galileo is, is saying to his friend, the Pope, blah, 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 blah. And his friend, the Pope is like, prove it, prove it, prove it. And that's when it starts to go sideways. So here's what happens. He has this Pope and the Pope is his buddy. Mm-hmm. And the Pope is actually like, supporting him. Right. Like supporting him as in like giving him a place to live, mm-hmm. giving him a stipend, like a salary. Um, so he can, you know, eat and have servants and do his observations. And he and the Pope are like, and, and, and the Pope's like, I really want to kind of fund your research because I'm really intrigued by this. So investigate it, like prove it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and he doesn't because he's like, well, I'm Galileo and I'm like super cool and I shouldn't have to prove it. And so that th- there's a, but there's a cardinal. Mm-hmm. Okay, at the time at the time. And that cardinal is even like super buddies with uh Galileo. And he comes over to Galileo's house and he like looks through the telescope. And this cardinal is really into this. And he's like, Oh, Galileo, man, I think you're really on to something. You know, you really need to like pursue this. And I personally am like really interested in this. I'm like a, a fan of all this astronomy and math and everything else. So the the one pope dies, and that cardinal who's Galileo's buddy, mm-hmm gets elected pope. Right. Now Galileo goes, dude, my my buddy who comes over at nights and looks through the telescope with me, he's now the Pope. He's totally gonna promote me and he's gonna make me the, you know, official, like allotted astronomer of the church and give me awards and mm-hmm. fund me and promote my things and promote my books and promote my theories and, and all that but it doesn't go that way.
1: Right. Um, and so we kind of skipped over the fact that there was a first trial that didn't go anywhere. Um, that was in the phase that we were talking about where the, where the church basically said, put up or shut up. If you can't prove it, then stop treating it like it's fact. And that trial didn't go anywhere. Um, Robert Bellarmine, who's a saint, was actually involved in that. He He essentially told Galileo, like, you can't just bully the church into accepting your view of science and scripture unless you can make the math work and prove it and that didn't work it didn't go anywhere it, it died down and then as you say his friend becomes the pope and even though his his friend who's now pope supports him in his research he wasn't totally convinced of galileo's theories either because he hadn't proven them and so you know they're they're talking to each other and this new pope has um these counter arguments to what galileo was saying about the heliocentric theory about the copernican theory but he's also very interested in what Galileo is saying. So he says, basically, write about it. Make sure you write about it as a hypothesis, as a theory, not as fact. When you write about it, include my, you know, conceivable counter arguments um, and co- cover all the bases, cover all the possible positions here. You can, you can write about your own views, but you need
0: to treat this as an unsolved scientific problem. And he essentially gives him a contract. Right. Okay. And the contract says you can live in this fancy house in Rome because you've got like this nice villa in Rome and he's got a servants and he's got, you know, funding and, you know, food and room and board and funding and all this kind of stuff. But you may not publish your uh, theories unless you can publish them with, you know, the math. The yeah, or at
1: least not publish them as as fact.
0: Right. Yeah. I, mean, right. You know, I mean, you can yeah. advocate for theories, but you can't, you can't go out there and assert something that essentially is not peer-reviewed.
1: Right. And, and that was kind of part of the result of that first trial that he went through, too, where, right. where they essentially ordered him. It's not that you can't talk about heliocentrism. It's that you can't talk about it as if it's
0: proven. You, can't, it's uh, you fact. can't say it's settled fact. And he gives him a contract. Here's the deal. You get to live in this nice villa. In Rome, you get servants, you get food, you get funding, you get support, you get all the you know, money you need to do your research. It's just, pub, you know, right? You, you have to you know, put this as a hypothesis. You can't go out there and, and promote yourself as having proved this as a fact unless you've proved it as a fact. And he has actually a contract attached to him, mm-hmm. uh, attached to his funding. So he basically has a research contract and he has mm-hmm. to deliver the research. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's really material of the story in his trial because essentially what he is convicted of in the second trial is not the heliocentric theory because Copernicus did advocate, Copernic, uh, Kepler was proving it. What he was convicted of is breaching his contract, more or less, and asserting and uh, as fact something that he hadn't proven. Mm-hmm.
1: So as you mentioned uh, the pope essentially commissions him gives him permission to to write this book that's supposed to cover the problem from different sides he can adv- he can you know present the arguments for heliocentrism he's also got to present these other arguments and and so galileo spends a couple of years writing this book and then we get to
0: the moment right and now now dear listeners you know, i used a word that was use your imagination a little bit stronger than jackass Maybe one of those syllables wouldn't have involved, because Galileo spends a couple of years basically being funded by the Pope, right?) <laughs> And he writes this book and he writes it as a dialogue, mm-hmm. which is a common literary form. Right. And so he has like, you know, three or four people, you know, three or four like characters in the dialogue and they're advocating for different positions. And you have one guy advocating for the heliocentric theory, who's like a scholar, and the other guy in the dialogue who's advocating for the, you know, this and this. And he has one guy in the dialogue who's like the idiot,
1: who is <laughs> given a name that's functionally equivalent to idiot in. Or at least in simple, in sim, or at least simpleton in in it's Italian. Simplicio. Simplicio. In, in Italian,
0: it's Simplicio. Right. So mm-hmm. he's 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 the simpleton, the idiot, right? And and so there's this one guy who like okay, so these scholars in this dialogue, this book he publishes, are are debating you know, the mm-hmm. the And there's one guy sort of in this dialogue who, who literally is named Simplicio, who's the idiot.
1: And and Galileo puts the Pope's own arguments against heliocentrism in <laughs> Simplicio's mouth in, yeah. in this dialogue.
0: Now, this was the guy who as a cardinal had been his buddy, was going over to his villa in Rome, looking through the telescope, right? Working with him, supporting him, gives him like funding. And what he did, does is is he actually publishes a book in which he takes the guy who's his benefactor and his best supporter and his best friend, and he calls him an idiot mm-hmm. Now, if like I said, Galileo's, you know, ultimate flaw was not being a brilliant scientist because C- Copernicus was brilliant. J- Kepler was brilliant. There are a lot of brilliant scientists who worked on this problem. Galileo's biggest problem was that he was an egotistical, self-promoting jackass. Mm-hmm. And why don't you take it from there?
1: Well, yeah, the, the Pope didn't exactly take kindly to that. Um, in fact, he was extremely offended, and and so that's where you get the second trial in 1633. And and as we mentioned before, this this gets um, tied up with with the with the opinions about scripture and, and the Vatican then as now you obviously have different factions and people who are doing things for different reasons. Some are theological, some are political. And so you have people who are upset that he's promoting heliocentrism because they, they disagree with it, and they think it's heretical because they think it dis- disagrees with the Bible. That's not the Pope's position, and it's not a magisterial teaching that t- at that time or at any time. It's
0: never. No, no the, this yeah. particular Pope was very interested in the heliocentric theory, and had it funded Galileo to try to, to 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 make it work. Right. They they wanted
1: they didn't want to jump on any scientific bandwagons without proving it, of course. Um, but they were the the highest authority. Living authority in the church was open to that idea, um, but like I said, there's different currents going on here, and so because he insulted the pope, Galileo ends up back on trial with the Inquisition, and all of those gears turn. Now he the to get back to your myth uh, that you narrated at the beginning, um, there's the whole story about him being thrown into the deep dark dungeon and first, first being that
0: he was excommunicated. excommunicated. He was never excommunicated. What he was done is he was essentially convicted of breach of contract.
1: And, and there was this whole thing about like being suspected of heresy, but they didn't convict him of
0: heresy. He was never convicted of heresy. He basically was convicted of, of, of publishing um, stuff that was unauthorized mm-hmm basically unauthorized publishing and, and 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 I mean in our modern term we would say breach of contract
1: right and and so there's the whole myth about him being thrown into the dungeon <laughs> he was not thrown into a dungeon i mean he was during the
0: extent of the trial he was in rome he was not being mistreated okay let's say when he was in rome now i've been in the mamertine prison where peter and paul were held mm-hmm. and i know the part of rome who, where he was in prison he was not in prison he was he was he was under he was confined okay they saw house arrest but but actually he was given a villa not far from piazza navona beautiful villa mm. with a valet and servants and he had the freedom to move about Rome. Right, it's it's really more
1: like at that time the term house arrest that we would use is really more like you're you're limited within a certain geographical area. So like there's this radius that you're, you're not supposed, supposed to go outside. So, you're
0: not of. supposed to leave and go to Paris. Right.
1: You can't just skip town and, you know, you can't obey skip the
0: authority. So he was given he was funded the the Vatican provided him a villa with servants. In which people could come and go and he could have visitors and he could move freely about Rome, but he wasn't permitted to leave Rome. Mm-hmm. And then after that, he was moved to, he was given a villa, a country villa and an estate outside Florence, mm-hmm. okay, with, with, with servants. And he comfortably lived out his days in a country estate outside Florence with servants, entertaining visitors. Right, and and so that's when he's convicted. He's moved out of Rome to this villa outside of
1: Florence. Um, At this time, he's in his 70s, I believe. He's starting to go blind. Like he's he's having some of his own... Issues that, you know, happen because you get old, but none of this was the result of the punishment. He was not mistreated. Um, he, he didn't suffer ill health because of the treatment. He wasn't tortured. All, All of those things are,
0: are myths and, and fabrications. Yeah. So... You know, the interesting thing kind of brings us a little longer, but I mean, this is so interesting. I mean, I, I feel like we could we could just talk about this for hours because this is so, because it really is, like you said, what'd you call it? Like the origin story or something mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's kind of a foundational, you know, myth. the foundational origin story myth or something, uh, you know, of, of the modern world. Uh, and you know, once you start, uh, getting into it, you start getting into all these kind of like fundamental truths that everything hinges on, right? Um, Like, I just think everything about this is interesting because on the other side, they say everything about this is interesting to prove the church is wrong. I think everything about this is interesting to prove something different. Um, The thing about the whole Galileo incident and the whole Galileo myth, right? Is, you know, you typically will hear that the church has persecuted scientists. Mm -hmm. And so then you say, well, like which scientists? Right? You want to say the church has persecuted scientists over the ages. Give me a like, list. Give sure. me a list. And what it comes down to is, well, like Galileo. And you go, okay, um, well, we've just spent the last 50, 54 <laughs> minutes talking about Galileo and how he wasn't really persecuted by the church for science. So give me, who? what's your next one on your list? And the next one they'll give you is Giordano Bruno. And we don't have time to talk about him, <laughs> but Giordano Bruno was not a scientist. He was a, a, a kook who was convicted and, and burned at the stake for heresy for a whole t- totally different set of reasons for being basically a heretic and a kook that <laughs> had nothing to do with scientists science. And he wasn't a scientist. And then you go, okay, okay. That's one. That's two. Give me three. And you go, Oh, we don't have any three because the church, the Catholic church has never persecuted scientists.
1: Right. And I mean, not to you know belabor the point, but then you go forward from Galileo and you have so many of the, the pioneering scientists either being Catholics and some of them being priests or being Christians of other stripes. Um, who were the main forces in moving scientific theory and practice forward? I mean, you just have to think of like Newton and Gregor Mendel and um, Lamatra, who um, posited the Big Bang theory, and 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 uh, there's there's too many to count. And not all scientists have been Christians or Catholics, but th- there's a very strong current of scientific interest and and innovation in the church and it just stands as a as a very stark counterpoint to what the Galileo myth is trying to posit.
0: Yeah. So dear listeners, if you've stuck with us through this epic <laughs> epic uh, conversation, the Galileo like, rant. The Galileo yes. rant. I like I I seriously seriously I could um sitting out here in the forest if it was the sun goes was going down and uh I could sit here for another hour and go on about it because I I personally find everything about this like so fascinating, we haven't even scratched the surface of all the ways of all things that were going on, you know, in the 17th century, um, and the way that the church and science interacted, and the church and the world interacted in the in you know in the 16th and 17th, 18th centuries. Like we haven't even begun to really scratch the surface of that, and maybe in future episodes we will. But to, to just kind of sort of bring it to conclusion, the church uh, has never been opposed to science. Strictly understood as you know the empirical sciences. It has been opposed to science opposed to scientific materialism, and that's not what Galileo was all about. He wasn't an advocate for scientific materialism. And just a lot of this is basically a bad rap on Catholicism. But Cory, I'm going to give you the last words,
1: yeah. um a couple things i would say one is that i think as as you said the the fundamental point here is that the the idea of a of a sort of fundamental con not to apologize for everything that every individual person involved in the galileo affair did i mean there were tempers there were politics there were stubbornness um on the part of churchmen and and the the church actually under under saint john paul ii apologized for the the things you know the ways in which uh, things went wrong and could have been done better. The point is not that the the behavior of the church has been completely spotless, although it's a heck of a lot better than than is portrayed in the myth. The point is that there's nothing about the Galileo affair or other affairs um, related to scientists that that remotely proves the idea that there's there's a conflict or a contradiction between faith and science. And really, I, I think that's the important thing.
0: Amen. Well, hey, you know, I'm sure that we'll be touching on these topics again in the future, because really this, this really goes to the relationship between the church and the world uh, and the church and, and the arts and the sciences. And, you know, I mean, we could find other instances where, you know, that, that interaction between the church and the world. And I think it's the characterization of the church Mm -hmm. as being opposed to these things that, that really is you know, was off base.
1: Well, and it's not just theoretical or, or historical. Like these, these ideas, history and theory matters. It, it, it the souls are in play here, whether, whether they will listen to the church and listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ or not based on what they believe about Galileo.
0: Amen. All right. Thanks, Corey. Yep. Thank you. All right, thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts, and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.